until then back on resistance radio starts right now when machines and computers profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people the giant triplets of racism extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered George Bush doesn't care about black people. I still wrap my hijab, wrap my hijab, wrap my hijab, wrap, wrap my hijab. Keep swagging my hijab, swagging my hijab, swagging my hijab, swagging, swagging my hijab. They have a Black History Month, but we don't have a White History Month. Well, all we've ever been taught is white history. If it was not for the love and respect shown to me by black women, those right-wing, ultra-conservative, alt-right haters, they would have me believe I'm too black, I'm too confrontational, I'm too tough, and I'm too disrespectful of them. But now I know I'm simply a strong black woman. In a time where corporations are treated like people and people are treated like things, they promote legislation that attacks voting rights, the poor, LGBT citizens, the immigrant community, and civil rights that are lewd, mean spirited, and fundamentally contrary to what our democracy is supposed to be about. What is bad is not what they are doing. What would be bad is for us not to fight back. Hey ho, let's go. This is 102.3 WHIVLPFM. You are listening to Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Calendary. With me, as always, is the debonair and very dapper Kenny Francis, who's always, as, as a result of this past weekend and my interactions with him, I do recognize that he is one bit short of a bite. So. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> A B Y T E. It's a it's a computer. It's a it's a. Oh. You're one bit short. I realized <laughs> that the, some of the frustrations I was having uh, <laughs> because this is actually a really exciting show. And by and of course I'm joking. Uh, but Kenny Francis you know what's funny? is a, a friend of mine who listens to the show. She was like, you know, I've listened back to like basically every episode of his show, and it's really funny how Mark Allen has gone from like insulting you at the beginning of every episode to like not complimenting you. And I was like, yeah. I, I'm going back to insults now. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that there's a natural uh, ebb and flow. And I think that because today's show is really going to be resting in your hands, yeah. uh, I definitely wanted to start it with a nice... I'm excited to be back. Um, I'm sad that I had to miss last week, but I like everyone else, oh, yeah. I got to listen. Um, I had strep throat, which is no joke when you're an adult, man. Strep yeah. throat is like a rough... Rough thing when you're an adult. Yeah, and I do, I do want to recognize that you are saying that to an infectious diseases doctor. Yeah. Okay. I mean, right. was, I mean, when was the last time you had strep throat? It's like it's pretty awful. Uh, never. Really? Yeah. Never. Yeah. Lucky you. Uh, it's, yeah. I wouldn't <laughs> wish it on anyone. It's. I mean, I didn't. I wasn't eating solid food till like Thursday. No, it's rough. 
Yeah. It's it's rough. I mean, I mean I've I don't want to see I don't want to see any like Kenny, soup. Kenny was like supposed months. to come over to my house on Saturday night, and I was waiting. Oh, and yeah, like no. on Sunday, he was like, "Dude, this is not gonna happen." Yeah, and Saturday night, I was I was like, <laughs> "What's happening?" I, I mean, the, the crazy thing about strep is that like it it comes on like oh yeah immediately. Like yeah, yeah, I yeah. like I like went down like hill real fast yeah, over yeah, like yeah. just like a couple hour period, a couple hour period, and it's one of those crazy things where like I think at this point most adults who've had it. Can like self-diagnose because like there's there's very little things that like take you down that quickly. Yeah. Um, well, there's there's four diagnoses. Well, the four that are like, look exactly the same: strep, strep throat, mm-hmm. flu, mono, and acute HIV are yep. the, are the four things that when somebody comes in complaining of the things that you did, mm-hmm. those are the first four things that you got. Do they all come down like as quickly? As oh yeah. Oh like, yeah. 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 The I've mono, got, probably the mono may be a little slower, yeah. but the other three, I've never had the flu hit me as fast as strep though. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, yeah. I'm glad you're better. Cause I get my vaccine. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, indeed. I get my vaccine. Uh, Don't you vaccinate your damn kids. Vaccinate your kids. Everybody vaccinate yourself. Uh, Kenny came over uh, yesterday. I figured after he had several days of antibiotics, he was safe to come <laughs> to the house. So. I mean, you would know. <laughs> I would hope you would know <laughs> for your patience. Uh, <laughs> I would hope you'd know. Um, we have to jump into things. Yes, uh, we have a lot. To yeah, talk we about. have a lot. To so talk I want to. I want to. I'm going to start here by saying a couple of things. Um, the first thing I want to do is say very clearly, which is like, I want to give like a, a disclaimer on top of a disclaimer that we normally give. All right. Um, everything that I am about to say over the next two hours that I don't present yes, as a, a two-hour show. Um, everything that I don't present as a fact, everything that I present as an opinion, I want to be super clear, and I might even say this several times through the course of us recording, that like every opinion that I give over the next two hours is my opinion and my opinion alone and does not in any way reflect the views of anyone that I currently work for, anyone that I previously worked for, anyone that I may work for in the future. It also doesn't represent Mark Allen's views or the the station or Nosita, the, the nonprofit that um, that runs the station or its board. These are my opinions um, because – and the reason why I'm doing such a large, global, you can only hold me personally accountable for anything that I say um, type thing is because we're going to be talking about schools today. We're going to be talking about specifically schools in New Orleans, which anyone who's listening and knows anything about education in the system is an incredibly polarizing um, conversation piece. And so like, I want to be really clear that like any opinions that people glean from this are mine and mine alone and not anyone else's. And just to also just kind of just real quickly just jump in that we're doing a special two-hour show today that's going to be broken down to two different podcasts that are going to be uh, – so we're, we're going to be using Mark Parody's show, uh, Mega Music Monday. So we're going to be actually broadcasting from 6 to 8. Mm-hmm. And again, these are, going to be, these are going to be released as two separate podcasts. And then this is a complete four-part series on education in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And the other two parts are going to be – uh, podcasted out in the next week or two, yeah. and then we're going to play them in the last two Mondays. Of but they'll be out September, and online for folks to listen to, or August rather, yeah. But they're going to be out online. Um, and so I'm going to start before we jump right in and say that um, I have been very vague in the past about what I did for a living, other than vaguely saying I was an educator because I was directly working in the field. And so for the first time, I'm going to sort of like talk completely about what I did. So I moved to New Orleans. In 2011, I was part of the Teach for America Corps. If you're unfamiliar with Teach for America, it's a program in which, like, you apply when you're ending college. Um, you get placed. Uh, you put like preferences of where you want to go, what types of things you're interested in teaching, um, and then you get matched to like a city that meets the need 
um, and in, into an area that meets the need. And so I matched with New Orleans. Um, kind of like a Peace Corps for teachers. Kind of, yeah. Um, I matched with New Orleans. I was part of the 2011 Corps. Um, I got matched in early childhood. Um, and then I spent the next six years teaching kindergarten and, and, and pre-K. So I was an early childhood teacher. Um, I taught at three specific places. I taught at KIPP. Um, the school that I taught at was a KIPP called KIPP Mac 15. It was a, at the time it was in the French Quarter. Now it's out in the east. They got a new building a couple of years ago. Um, if you're unfamiliar with KIPP, KIPP is part is a charter network that is a part of a national charter network. Um, they actually have 200 schools in over 20 states. Um, they have nine schools here locally, and I worked at one of them. Um, the second place that I taught at was a local charter network called First Line Schools. They have five schools locally, um, and then the last place I taught before I left the classroom was a play, was was a uh, Renew Schools, uh, which is a, another local charter network. Uh, they have four schools here. When I was at First Line, I taught at a school named Phyllis Wheatley, which is in the Treme, not far from where we're sitting right now, um, right by Willie Mays. And when I was at Renew, I taught at a school called Schomburg that was out in the east. Um, unfortunately, most people probably know Schomburg from that was a school that that got hit by the tornado back in 2017. I was actually there that day, and it was horrifying and terrifying, um, and I hope never, no one ever has to go through something like that. Um, and then after I left the classroom in 2017, I joined the Orleans Parish School Board as part of the administration. Um, I worked first in doing more compliance work um, and more so like uh, oversight and policy work. I was part of what was called the school performance team. Um, a big focus that we had that, that year that I was there doing that was helping to rewrite the performance framework through which charter schools are held accountable to and then helping implement that. Um, Can I ask you a quick question? Why did you leave the classroom? I left the classroom for a lot of reasons. Um, I think the overarching thing is that teaching is a very, unfortunately, a very unsustainable job, particularly in the context of public education. Um, uh, Define unsustainable. I mean, like, we're going to get into it. In every way, shape, and form. It is unsustainable. It used to be a sustainable job. it did. Right. Um, and, and you make a point of that here, yeah. but but it was you found it to be unsustainable, like unrewarding. Well, t- uh, well I would I would argue that teaching has kind of always been an unsustainable job, but the, the reality for teachers is that every year the demands on teachers of like what you need to do to be able to do the job well increases. Um while the supports and the resources um and also just frankly the salary don't don't increase with it. Um, and so teaching in a, in a public school in an urban district in 2019 is extremely different than teaching in a public school in an urban district in 1989. Um, my aunt was a teacher for 35 years, and her and I talked all the time about how it was just – I just had a different job than she did when she was in the classroom for all those years. Um, and it's for a lot of reasons – um, one of the biggest reasons being becomes one thing that we do know is that inequality and the things that drive poverty in this country have gotten worse. Like, right, wages have been stagnant since the '70s, and so the inequalities have only gotten worse and worse and worse. Which the kids coming into the classroom, the needs were just growing more and more and more and more. Where you're not just a teacher; you're a social worker, you're a psychiatrist, you're a psychologist, your mom, your dad, you're, you're everything. You're bringing, you're um, feeding, you're bringing food you're, for kids, you're, literally, you're providing you're, pencils. I mean, and, I, I mean, I don't say this as a joke. Like, I literally was potty training kids. Right. That I was like a that. thing that yeah. I did. Um, and so the the job just gets bigger and bigger every year. Um, and to do it well. I, I don't, the thing is that like it's almost to the point where like I don't know if you can be a good teacher and it not be unsustainable from a physical, mental, and emotional way, which is why what we see the data that we see about teacher retention. The national data on teacher retention is that teachers are staying in the classroom less than five years. Um, 
in some places it's even lower than that. Some places like 2.5. Um, that's what the data we show in New Orleans that people are saying 2.5. At the same time, the research shows that teachers really start to hit their stride in year three. So people aren't even getting to that point. And I don't blame them, right? Like you're at sort of like at my worst, right? At, at sort of what I saw as the most unsustainable part of my teaching career. I was working almost like 70 hours a week and I was making like $42,000 a year and I like could barely pay rent. I could barely pay my student loans and I was literally killing myself. Um, I taught for six years and it felt like 60. Um, I feel an extremely old, I'm turning 30 this year. I feel an extremely old 30. Um, and I think of the many reasons why I left the classroom, one of the biggest ones is I started going to therapy and my therapist told me flat out, she's like, you need to get a different job. Like this is like literally extremely negatively impacting your mental and emotional health. And like, I know that you love these kids and I know that you care deeply about what you do, but you, you need to get a different job. Like you are, you are you are sacrificing your own health for this job. And so what you ended up shifting into, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, was you were starting to kind of create the infrastructure that kind of tried to create well, so some I'll equity. Get, so I'll or, get there. So so like back in 2017 when I decided to leave the classroom, um, I had two options that I was weighing. One option was a one-way plane ticket to Thailand, and I was just going to leave. And I was going to move to Thailand, and I was going to, do, I was going to teach English, and I was just going to not ever come back. Um, and then the other thing I had was the job I actually took, the job offer at OPSB. And I think that like I became interested in that sort of systems levels work because a lot of my frustrations I had in the classroom was my inability to impact the systems that I had no control over, right? I could control what was happening in the fall wars, fall wars of my classroom, but I couldn't really impact anything outside of that. And I think I got to this place where it's like I, got, I was a very good teacher when I left the classroom, but it's like once the kids left my room, I couldn't do anything about essentially the rest of their lives or even the rest of their education experience, whether it be in that singular school I was teaching at or the rest of their education experience. And so like part of why I ended up at OPSB was a desire to work at a more systems level to be like, okay, well like let's see what good I can do there. Um, And then ultimately that's part of why I left OPSB eventually itself and took the job that I have now working in a nonprofit world where the politics above the school board or outside of the school board I couldn't really impact as sort of like a mid-level bureaucrat. Um, and so like from the outside, from the advocacy side, um, I think the difference between the work that I did at OPSB and the work that I do now, I've been described, I've only been in the job for like a month, but I've been, I think the feeling, the difference I have feeling wise is that like when you're working in local government like that, often it can just be firefighting. You're just like plugging holes. You're just trying to catch, you know, it, you know what I would just, you know what I describe it as? You ever um, this, this this might be like a purely black people thing because like there's this, there's this joke about how black people aren't contributing to plastic in the world because like all of our plastic bags are in our closet. Um, it's just like a thing. We just keep all those little plastic bags, and every black person that's listens to this knows what I'm talking about. And like it's like when you open the closet door and the and the plastic bag like mountain just comes on, you're just trying to stop them all from coming out. And you keep, that's what like working in local government is like. If you're just like, oh my goodness, get the bags all back in the closet, um, and so it's like most people would identify with whack a mole, and, it's, and it's, <laughs> so it's it's going and so like leaving like working at OPSB and doing the job I'm doing now in the nonprofit world was like is essentially going from that to like working at like a think tank, um, because you're not dealing with like fires in that way. Where uh, I think the way that I think about the work that I'm doing now is that like 
you're not plugging holes, you're not finding bandages, you're, th- you're looking for the cure. Right, you're, like, you're playing the you're, long game. Exactly, you, and you get to, because like you're not dealing with the day-to-day demands of like, right. th- this is going to be in the news, or like people are going to be really, really detrimentally hurt if like you don't figure this out right now, and right. figure out something that works right now. Um, and so like I... I, I feel very fortunate and very uh, thankful to be able to have the space to do that and to continue to like help work and advocate on behalf of children and families in this way. Um, and so I think all of those are the reasons why I left the classroom. Um, but I would say the biggest thing is that like it was killing me. Like to be, and I, I know every teacher that has taught knows exactly what I'm talking about. It was literally killing me. So in the in the uh, uh, over the course of the next two hours, we're gonna kind of toward the end of. Uh, uh, at the end of the conversation, probably the last segment or so, uh, there's a, Kenny wrote a really beautiful piece on teachers and and schools and and uh, and and we're gonna get to that in a second. Let me just kind of and we're gonna really kind of focus in on the, some of the teachers because I think, as I've said once, I've said it a million times, the unspoken heroes or heroines of of our society, not only here in the U.S. but all over the world, are teachers. And uh, without teachers, uh, obviously, and the dedication of teachers. And I came up in a time where being a teacher was a full-time job, and it was a middle-class job. And you know, and 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 I think you write about that beautifully in in, in your in your statement. But as we just uh, I, uh, just let me just say real quickly, if you're tuned in, you are listening to one hundred two point three WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Calendary. That's Kenny Francis. Kenny and I are doing a special two-hour uh, special, uh, essentially going over New Orleans education uh, from the Recovery School District to unification and uh, we've just spent the last 15 minutes talking about Kenny's kind of path there's been a lot of stories over the course of 18 months I think since Kenny and I've been on air that I wanted to cover some of the education beat because there's a lot of really effed up stuff interesting stuff lots of stuff to think about and talk about that really bodes well for the type of conversations we have on resistance radio but there has been this kind of appropriate we're holding or we're keeping education off the table uh, for the time being and and uh, and so now that Kenny's no longer uh, working uh, for OPSB the Orleans Parish School Board I think that you know what we're going to see now over the course of basically the next four shows is Kenny's kind of uh, breakdown uh, an analysis uh, of uh, essentially the recovery school district how we got here uh, and then ultimately uh, where we're going to be going and, and then lastly uh, focusing on kind of future kind of educational uh, endeavors uh, and so with that said And so before we jump into So as Mark Allen was saying This first episode is going to really focus in on um, The history of what happened between the creation of RSD Which happened in 2003 And then leading up to unification Which recently happened um, The second episode that we're going to do we're gonna, I'm going to sort of break down our local governance structure Which I know is really confusing um, for folks And so I would love to just give like a long explanation Of like how that works and then the third, the third episode is going to be sort of like a reflection of like observations and opinions about the system and like what are the things that sort of like the big challenges that we still need to tackle to make things better for kids and families. Um, before we jump into the history part of it, I do want to say a couple more things. Um, I want to say I want to be really clear about what this will be and what this will not be. What this will not be is me talking about specific problems at specific schools or specific people in the education field because frankly, that's just gossip and like that's happening in plenty of places and plenty of places, plenty of people are doing that. And I, I don't think it really adds anything to the conversation. Um, the second thing that this will not be is it won't be me getting into the weeds of like breaking down test scores or like value add scores or any sort of like granular data like that. Uh, I am not a scientific researcher and I'm not going to pretend to be, 
Uh, my observation is going to be much more structural than scientific. If you're looking for a scientific research on education in, in this city and charter schools and all of that, I would encourage you to go read some of the plethora of work that is out there. Um, a good place to start would be ERA, the Education Research Alliance, or the Cowan Institute. There's plenty of reports they put out over the years that if you want to get into like the science of it, of the scientific research of it, you can do that. But I want to be clear that I'm not a scientific researcher, so I'm not trying to do that. What this will be is what I just said. We're going to do sort of an overview of what happened and then give some reflections and opinions. Um, I want to start with one. Um, I want to be really clear and like bury the lead on like what my personal opinions uh, on the whole like pro versus anti-charter schools thing is. My personal opinions is that I'm largely agnostic about and about charter schools versus um, traditional public schools, and here's why. Um, I believe very firmly that traditional schools have failed black and brown children, especially the poor ones, especially the ones with disabilities, especially the ones that speak English as a second language. I also believe that charter schools have failed those same school, those same kids. Um, and at the end of the day, whether you're talking about a traditional public school or a charter school system, those are, those are, those are simply systems of governance. And the issues that affect children and families are happening in the middle of this conversation where you've got one camp that's saying charters are the best thing that's ever happened. You've got another camp saying that charters are the worst thing that's ever happened. And in the middle, the same kids that have been getting failed since the beginning of time in this country are the same kids that are still getting failed. And so, like, I'm personally not really interested in that conversation because for me, I've always been interested in the issues of why so many teachers can't stay in the classroom. Why is it that the same poor kids are in the same poor schools since this country was started? Why are we still not funding public edu education? Why is it still so hard for a family to find a place that they can trust to send their kid to get an education that gives them opportunities to contribute to the society when they're done? Um, I have a very firm belief in a... Um, an old African proverb that says, um, "If the children are not welcomed into the community, if the children are not welcomed into the village, they will burn it simply to fill to fill its warmth." And like the the fact that we don't value our public school system in America the way that other countries do shows in the violence and the extreme poverty and inequities in our society. Um, it's crazy that our country is the most powerful and wealthy country in the world, but we're like 35th in reading and 33rd in math and 40th in science. It doesn't make any sense. Well, it does if you're looking it at... Does. It does. And, and you're about to say the whole thing. It's not a bug of the system. It's <laughs> right. a design of the system. Yes. But like I'm saying logically, it doesn't make it... Like we, we more than have enough resources to provide quality education for every child in this country, regardless of what system of governance you want to have over it, and we just don't do it. Can I also just give a preview for listeners that you're going to hear Kenny and I kind of go back and forth, and I think yesterday Liana kind of summarized our relationship perfectly well. <laughs> she, she did. She said, really good. she said that these are uh, two grown men uh, that are politi politically aligned on every single topic who tend to argue over the things they agree on, and um, and so what you're going to see over the... Or no, you're says are, we're politically on everything we agree on, but we spend all of our time arguing <laughs> about things that we agree on. Right. So, what, so, in, in, in kind of the, and over the last 24 hours, as I think about it, I think that, and, and so just, so listeners, just so that you know, I tend to think a little bit kind of like a 20,000 feet, and Kenny kind of looks at things at like 24 feet, and he's a much more detailed. That's why I have a policy job. Right. He's a much more <laughs> detail oriented person. And so you're going to hear this back and forth, go back and forth. Uh, and I think what uh, Liana uh, kind of so accurately described yesterday is that we're always discussing the same things and we're always on the same side of things. We just have different ways of kind of explaining it. And so, yeah. so anyway, so just two things. Are you done with the intro? So I have yeah. two questions to start off with. So the, the, 
can you explain what RSD is? Because and, and then I, that, and yeah. then I want you to explain unification because the title is RSD to unification. So and I think I'm, I'm gonna let you guys just let me go. Yes, let, let me, me do just it. one last thing. A lot of people like myself. Until I read your your summary here. I actually thought Recovery School District actually, because I moved to New Orleans just a couple of weeks before Katrina, mm-hmm. I always assumed the recovery was talking about Katrina. It actually existed before Katrina. Yeah, I, I, so like, I learned. So I'm yes. gonna, I'm so, gonna, let's, go we're gonna get into that because it makes sense and to yeah. go in the order. So we're just gonna go, go in the order. Go, go, so go, I want to, I want to go before that, and I just want to go back. I want to start with like what the genesis of charter schools are. So charter schools as an idea. It goes back to 1974, and it's often credited to this guy who's a professor at UMass Amherst. His name is Ray Buddy. Um, and as originally conceived, the idea of uh, the ideal model of a charter school was as a legally and financially autonomous public school that didn't charge tuition or have a religious affiliation or wasn't selective admission. That was just a public open enrollment school, meaning anyone could go. Um, that would operate much like a private business, a private business, so free from state laws and district regulations, and accountable um, more for student outcomes rather than processes or inputs. Um, and so the idea would be that it would, there would be these things that like were outside of local government that had public funds that were outside of the bureaucracy, and like all that they were accountable to was like, did the kids learn by whatever you want to measure learning? And in America, we choose to measure learning by standardized testing. And so, like, essentially, that's what the idea was. Like, if you could pass the standardized test, however you get there, that's cool. That's cool. Sounds, that's, it sounds very libertarian. Was yes, it? and 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 let's let's call it what it is. Like the idea, like the idea of charter schools is a very conservative libertarian idea of like government isn't doing a good job of this, so let's remove the government for it. That's like sort of the essential idea of it is like the autonomy at the local level to to adjudicate the things that could that that lead to outcomes. Um, and let the market decide, you know, who's good and who's bad. If the if it's a bad school, you you just won't send your kids there, and that school will go away. That's sort of like the the original idea. Um, the first state to pass legislation allowing charter schools was Minnesota back in 1991. Um, Louisiana's original charter school law uh, called Act 192. Um, it was passed in 1995, and it and what it it was a pilot, and what it allowed was for up to eight school districts in the state to volunteer to participate um, in the pilot, and allowed either the local school district or Bessie. Bessie is stands for the Board of Elementary and Secondary Education. The easiest way to think about Bessie is they're the state school board. Um, they're publicly elected. There's seven people on the board, and we vote. In fact, we're about to have an election for all seven of them. Um, two of them are based here locally. Um, and so the two people that could authorize the opening of a charter school is either the local school board, the school district, or Bessie, the state board. Um, this was revised in 1997 as Act 477 to allow all districts to participate if they wanted to. Um, but it placed, and this is an important note, they play it at the time, 1997, they placed a cap on the number of charters at 42. There could not be 42, more than 42 charters authorized in the whole state. Um, as you might guess, considering we have much more than that now, that was later removed, but we'll get to that. So let's get to the creation of the RSD. But I want to base us in some facts about the state of education in our state and in our city before the storm. Um, so before the storm, before Katrina, Louisiana was and is still one of the lowest performing states in education outcomes in the, in the country. Um, we rank in the bottom three, and it's been a very long time, if ever, that we've ranked out of the bottom three in the country um, in education outcomes. Um, and Orleans Parish specifically has ranked in the bottom three, ranked consistently ranked before the storm in the bottom three of the 64 parishes 
um, we would rank consistently in the bottom three of outcomes for education. Um, this was evidenced by the fact that in 2004, in the 2004, 2005 school year, the school year directly preceding Hurricane Katrina, roughly 60% of students going to public school in New Orleans were attending a school rated F by the standards of standardized testing. So things were things so, were bad. So oh, I'm not I, even. I, no, no, I know, I know. But I always hear people talk about how great things were back in the day. And, and and the thing is that like there were pockets, like most things, there were pockets of success. Like if you happened to go to one of the few good schools in the city, you were good. But it, for the most part, like I said, sixty percent of schools were F by two thousand four, two thousand five. And then also the leadership was lacking. Yes. Um. What you're alluding to is the next point. The next point is that. Additionally to the poor performance, there was really unstable leadership, really unstable leadership, meaning between 1998 and 2005, we had six different interim superintendents that all lasted varying degrees of time. One of them lasted just a couple of months. Just because the job was too hard or the, it was just a cluster? It was just a, cl- it was just a cluster. It was a cluster. Um, there was rampant corruption. It abounded. Um, that eventually resulted in an FBI investigation and federal indictments and charges for 24 people associated with the Orleans Parish School Board in 2004 for stealing tens of thousands of dollars of public money through illegal kickbacks and other activities. Even active school board members at the time were involved and got charged. I mean, to be frank, the FBI practically had an office set up at OPSB during this time and were just like arresting people. Um, and then eventually, right before Katrina, a federal audit, because of all of this, deemed that our school district was broke in 2005. We were essentially bankrupt right before Katrina happened. So you can imagine, obviously, no one could, no one knew that Katrina was going to happen and be what it was. But like, right, just like, let that set in for a second. That right before Katrina hit, the feds are like, "Y'all are broke. You don't have any money." And then this disaster happens and destroys everything, and we don't have any money to to replace anything. Um, and there was not even and that was and that was back. all because of mismanagement and corruption because like I said, twenty four people associated that were like associated as in like employees administrators with the Orleans Parish School Board got federal charges for corruption and as recent as twenty fifteen and 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 one of the things that as a point to make is that like um there there's been a there's been a history of this in our state in in local politics and local government where to your point is like most recently a board member was uh, was arrested for corruption in 2015 and so like there's a long history of this happening um and so i think an opinion here i'm going to be clear i'm going to be very clear when i give an opinion it's an opinion is like i think something that is not an accurate characterization that i've heard a lot of people say in the city is that things were better before the storm and I can't see how you can look at the incredibly poor performance the schools were having as a whole um, and the corruption that was happening. I can't see how you can look at those two things and then say that things were better before. If you want to say that like things are not much better now or have that sort of argument, th- that's fine. We can do that. But to just blanket say like it was better before and then y'all came in here and like ruined the system and now it's worse now, that's just not – that's just not backed by facts of what happened. Right. Like you can't look at the performance of the schools and the corruption that was happening administratively and say that that was better. That's just like that's not it's not an accurate view of what was going on. It 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 also sounds kind of like what people would say. Well, I was able to pay for college on a minimum wage yes. job. That's like that's like that's like what my mom says. My mom, I had this argument with my mom all the time. She's like, you know, I went to college and I paid my way through college and I had loans and da da da. And, I'm, and I and I always have to remind her, mom. I literally am paying, like in terms of what I owe for my student loans for an undergraduate degree, costs more than what you paid for your first house. It is not comparable. 
what it costs you to go to a college to co- compare what it. And so it's like it, it is the same thing. It's like no, that's the, we can't pretend. Right, it's apples and oranges. Exactly. Um, one thing, one more thing, I want to I want to give as a bit of context before we get into the creation of the RSD. Is that in the national context for all of this happening in Louisiana, New Hello, Orleans? George Bush. Is that George Bush and those folks passed a, a thing in in, in the late nineties, uh, early two, in, it's actually two thousand one, um, a national law called No Child Left Behind, um, and No Child Left Behind ushered in what we see today: standardized testing. Um, what it it ushered in a nationwide growing spotlight and emphasis on standardized test scores. Um, and so state governments were feeling the heat because, like, one of the things that no, no Child Left Behind did is it tied your funding that you got from the feds to how well you were doing on the tests. And so it created the environment, the the hyper focus on standardized testing that we see today. That really goes all the way back. It's not a new thing. It goes all the way back to No Child Left Behind, which was passed two thousand one, where it said in order to keep getting this funding at this level, you gotta, you know, you gotta do X on these tests. And that's where this whole like obsession with testing and standardized testing came from was, you know, people when No Child Left Behind passed, they felt that before that time, there was not enough proof points of like whether or not education was like doing what it's supposed to and that kids were prepared in the way they're supposed to be. And you had, you know, billions upon billions of dollars going to schools and they felt like they didn't have proof, quote unquote, of like whether or not anything was working. And so they created this obsession with tests to say like, all right, justify that what you're doing here works or we're going to pull your funding. And it created a lot of negative disincentives to care too much, too like narrowly about how kids are performing on test scores. And what we know after many years of study is that standardized test scores is a a singular, it is a mark of how kids are performing, but it is not the mark. It is a part of a greater conversation and a greater picture of like the overall performance of a child. To view a child simply as a test score is a flawed way to view success. It if, is good. If you're tuned in, you are listening to 22.3 WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Allendary. That's Kenny Francis. Kenny and I are spending uh, two hours uh, going into detail of New Orleans education and Louisiana and ultimately how we are going from the recovery school district to unification. Kenny, let me ask you this. The... Um, the I remember when uh, when uh, what was it no child no child left behind uh, kind of was coming about I was in my residency in internal medicine around that time I was in middle school <laughs> <laughs> he's old y'all yeah um, uh, so but anyway I, something seemed wrong about it like I and I'm and I was in medicine so I'm mm-hmm. like in a completely different world but I mean obviously I was following and it was obsessed about the news mm-hmm. uh, as I am now and something just struck me wrong uh, that that everything was being I'm a perfect example of somebody who's a horrible test taker like yeah. I'm bad on standardized tests right yeah. I was able to show myself through writing through creativity I was able to get my way through medical school you know I was able to do like it, it like if if everything was in in my days if it was all just standardized testing yeah I probably would not have had the success that I've had now yeah. and I was cognizant of that in 2001 and 2002 I am sure that educational professionals were aware of that too. Yeah. Why was it just was it an easy shortcut? Was it just an easy number to get because you could just measure numbers and then reward the high performers and then yeah, and punish I mean, honestly, the low performers? Yeah. Was that another way? Because when you look at standard yeah. eight, was it another way of structural discrimination? Because when you look at like SATs, we know that SATs favor certain groups, uh, yeah. wealthy, privileged. I mean, I, th- I, mean, I think, so I, all think of that. I think part of it is that like. 
it, I mean, was really Bill Gates involved with I th- all this I th- stuff? I think, I, think, stuff? I, think, I, think, I think part of it is that, like, they were essentially trying to make schools, like, rather than... V- I think part of it is, like, what I view as an essential issue with the, with American society or when it comes to ed- education, where it came from a mindset that, like, schools had to, quote-unquote, prove that there was a value to what they were doing, rather than us simply saying that every child deserves a quality education and that we should just simply fund it because it's an inherent public good and an inherent societal good, we were like, no, you have to prove that this is worth it. That's that's like the, the I mean, attitude. To a large degree, is it commodification? Um, in of, a lot of ways, of, and, I, and I think I think and I think that like it's emblematic of what I view is like a very antiquated way of doing education, where we have an education system as a, in a as a country that is set up. In this sort of like industrial revolution style way of thinking, where you have children who are batched in these like batches by age that are a quote unquote finished product by the time they're in twelfth grade, and they're supposed to come out of that and then do a specific job, which is what factory work was like with the industrial revolution. But what we know when you think about child development and the way that our brain develops, it doesn't make any sense to batch children like that. Children should be batched by like developmental stage. So if a three year old and a six year old are developmentally in the same place, they should be. They should they should be like cohabitated together that way. The fact that we had the fact that we even have grades where it's like all right, all the three year olds go here, all the four year olds go here, all the five year olds go here. That doesn't make any sense when it comes to actual like brain development um, and the way that a child's brain and psychology develops. It's it's ignoring the science of that for this industrial revolution way of thinking about it. Um, so I think that's one enormous mistake we continue to make. Um, I think another thing I always I always talk about this uh the, this, this study that I read a long time ago. Um, they did a longitudinal study years ago um, about divergent thinking, which is the type of thinking that allows you to think creatively and come up with these big ideas. Uh, people like Bill Gates, people like um, Steve Jobs, these people who have like changed the world with the inventions they come up with are the, are people who are supposedly the most like amazing people at this. Uh, I think it says a lot that both of those people fell out of school and never finished. Um, that those are two of our more brilliant minds our society has ever produced, and they they couldn't. They couldn't hack it in the public in the like traditional public, traditional education system. Um, they gave this the te- a test on divergent thinking. Um, most people would a test on divergent thinking would most often look like look at what I've heard people say the Google interviews are like. You go on a Google interview, they give you this series of like tests, um, and they ask you things like um, how many golf balls can you fit in a in a in a school bus. And the type of people that don't get hired, are the type of people who just like sort of mathematically figure out the like cubic like measurements of golf balls and, and of a of a bus and then to come up with the exact number. The type of people that get hired are like, well, can the golf balls be five hundred feet big? Can the golf balls be mashed down into like little pancakes? Can the golf balls be stretched out? Like the type of people who think outside the box like that, divergent thinking. Um, they gave this test to a cross section of kids uh, who were aged about four years old. Um, so they had not begun um, no sorry, they're three year old. They've not not begun school yet. Um, and it was a cross section of kids across socioeconomic lines and racial lines. Um, and how many, what percentage of kids do you think scored genius level? Uh, uh, 50%. 95. 95. 95% of kids scored genius level. And then they gave, those long student studies, so they gave the test again over and over and over again as the kids aged and went through public education and were quote unquote educated, right? Formally. They, they By the time those kids graduated high school, what do you think? What do you think? How many percent 10%. of kids do you think? Five. Five. Five 5% of those kids like were genius level of divergent thinking. And the change was that they had been, they had been standardized educated 
for 12 years. Uh, it goes so and that, it, that it, says everything it about does. the way that it we It says think the theory education. that I always said. It's, the, it's not the bug. It's the feature. Yeah. That is a great... So uh, before we also continue down, I also want to make a very important point, too. It, because you, you, we, you and I talk about this all the time, and we talk about it on Resistance Radio, and you alluded it to a moment ago. How is school funded in the United States compared yeah. to other countries? Uh, so the way we f- largely fund schools in this country by property um, taxes. And so... Basically, if you live in a poor area, you have poor funding. Hmm. If you live in a rich shocked. area, you have great funding. I'm shocked. And then <laughs> really? we all and, and then you know, and then add the redlining. And then we all we already know about housing discrimination and yes. redlining and how hard it is to get into neighborhoods that have the resources. And so basically, the haves have they right. have the resources to like fully resource their schools and their kids. And they're and the, the ones that are probably saying, "Listen, I remember the way it was back then. Things were great." Yeah. And so, like it, it's it's set up inequitably that way. Yes, and like it I said, and like I said, that is the root. I think I think, no, I think no child left behind was just like another part of that, where it's like yes. again, yes. it was essentially requiring people, schools, public schools, approve like the value of what they're doing, rather than seeing it as an inherent value and an inherent social good, which it is. We spend so much money, like as the saying goes, we got money for war, but not money for educating right. kids. Right. Um, where. If it's crazy to me that we spend more on our military budget than we do education nationally, the mil- uh, in fact we spend more on our military budget than um, social services and education right. combined. It's, that's not crazy to me. It's that I mean, the, the, I mean that, that is crazy. That's a, for it's, me, it's objectively it's, crazy. It's, well, it, it's it, again, it's the systemic that's in the systemic yeah. discrimination, racism, whatever. That's the systemic element of it. So, yeah. but moving the story along, how did we get to Act Nine? Okay, so in two thousand three, in response to the the atmosphere that I just described, we've got failing schools, we've got a corrupt local school board. Um, and things no are child left behind. things no child left behind. So you know the feds are like breathing down our back, like, "Hey, Louisiana, you're fiftieth every right. year. Do Get something. it together. Do right. something." Um, so in response to this, um, in 2003, the Louisiana State Legislature passed, um, and then the voters approved a an amendment to the state constitution that was called Act Nine. Um, what Act Nine did is it granted Bessie, which remember I said is the Board of Elementary and Secondary Education. They're essentially the state school board. Um, it, it gave Bessie the power to temporarily take over chronically low-performing schools and directly operate them or, and here's the important part, contract their operations out to charter schools or universities. Ding, 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 ding. Um, and so this part is important to note because it's the beginning of what eventually led to the proliferation of charter schools that we've seen over the past 15 or so years. Um, and here, and like I said, I want to say two things here. This is opinion. Our public school system in this state and city was broken and desperately in need of reform because of what I described before. Um, and the data and the experiences of students and the families are showing that clearly. Second, it's also, it's also to me kind of obvious that like um, local, state, and national actors who were interested in the expansion of charter school, of charter schools and the charter school movement that was happening um, nationwide, they took advantage of a policy window here that was created by this atmosphere and then also by Katrina to to do this. And I and I do believe that having New Orleans become this sort of experiment for like what what a district with all charters look like and what the impact it could have appeared to be the plan the whole time. Like I think it's hard to argue that that wasn't the 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 plan to do the whole time. Um 
And so another thing that's important to note is that like at the time, Act Nine, the, the proponents of Act Nine included a lot of people. Hold on, can, yeah. before you get to that, let me just also just let me just take a step back and just say how it how shocking it is that you can have an entity come in and like wrestle control. I guess I shouldn't be shocked by it. I mean, you had Michigan that did it with their. Um, I wrote down it was their emergency manager law mm-hmm. in which the the state can deem a city in the, in one case Flint mm-hmm. to be unable to take care of itself mm-hmm. and they were going to send in an emergency manager mm-hmm. and they were going to flip the water from Lake Michigan to the Flint River which mm-hmm. obviously gave us a, uh, a a problem that I still can't believe is still happening and so is there is that a fair analogy to, to I don't cons- think I, I don't think it's fair. Then here's why I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's fair because, like, again, the atmosphere I described of, like, really poor performance and, like, rampant and consistent corruption showed that we were not doing a good job taking care of ourselves. So, like, the state had to do something. I mean, you can disagree with what they did. You can disagree with the way they did it. But the idea... That yeah, and, and I that, am. I am disagreeing with the way they And that's did fine. It. Okay, okay I, I, okay. I actually don't even think that's a crazy point of view. I'm okay. just saying that, like, the idea that, like, we were doing fine on our own is simply false. No, 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 no. I'm it's not, just not true. I'm not, I'm not at all suggesting that. I'm just, it just seems like such a heavy handed. I mean, it, so actually, and let me give, let me give you an example, right? Because like, I guess, like, for me, is that, like, the one thing I disagree with, and I will, I will consistently disagree with it, I consistently disagree with a point of view that says that the state should not intervene in a situation like this you, because like kids and families were being hurt irreparably by this and like i i don't see it any different than the federal government and the state government intervening when people do discriminatory things so like because like because if you want to argue that like no matter what's happening the locality should be left to the locality then we would still have segregation no no, no I, that's the joe biden I, argument no, 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 that, oh it's a local that. issue right right, like, right, right, right. busing no no i i totally am with you on that but what i'm i'm kind of pushing back on is the idea that like are we really okay with a entity coming in and taking away local control like they did when we really know when you in your in your best opinion um was that really all along maybe they didn't really have New Orleans system school system at the the best at heart what they really wanted to do was convert it all to a privatized system and, and so I, I think that like and that's I, the mistrust I th- that I th- I, th- I, th- I, th- I think that like what we saw, like like I, like we said at the top, like the idea of charter schools of like removing the local government from it is an inherently conservative idea, and this is a this is a state that has been ruled by conservative ideals for a long time. Okay, all like, right. I mean, like fair I, enough. I don't see it any different than the okay, way that Louisiana enough. does everything else. Sure, we've privatized literally everything in sure. the state: healthcare, sure. education, yeah. even infrastructure. Look at the sewage and water board. Like, right. like, like that's the way that the state is run. Do I agree with it? That's a whole other thing, oh, uh, right? Right, and like, that's what I'm saying. But like Louisiana has Louisiana has been governing itself like this for a right. long, but they, but long the thing time. Is, is, is that where they it's pretend like it has this belief that government can't do it. Right, government is bad. Like but, that's but, that's the way that and, and the Louisiana point, has behaved. It's what I, my point is. It's not singular to this. I totally this is understand. a Louisiana, I get it. Southern United States thing that government is bad. We must like put it out to these like these like private entities to do the things that government typically would do. That that distrust of government that's just like a regular conservative idea. Like Jim Jordan basically thought up like charter schools or healthcare system or any of it. Right, but. But the thing is, though, is that in doing so, in 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 and and converting this to a privatized system, what we're going to get to this toward the end of the story 
is that you know good and well that you're destroying the teachers' unions and you're going to be destroying. And again, because conservative but, ideas are what anti labor, right, right, right. anti union. So, so, but like Ronald but, Reagan destroyed but, the union. But hear me out. Hear me out. But don't you think it's important? Like they never say that. I never actually noticed you had a red one. That's actually pretty cool. Is that new? Yes. Okay, Kenny's got a red iPhone, which means that's HIV. Uh, it's HIV awareness. Did you know that was HIV awareness? I did not know that. Yeah, it's HIV awareness. Um, so the the point that I'm making is that uh, is is that if they felt that way. Just say it, but they don't say it, and that's the thing that's frustrating. They couch it, they put it in pretty language. Really, in the back of their minds, they know ultimately they're marching down this path of privatization that's going to be taking away jobs. I guess I just like, don't see like Republicans have been doing this since the beginning of their uh, okay. party. Like it's just a Republican All right. way. All right, right, like, right, right, right. It's a conservative way. Well, I do want to make a point though, because like people get very confused by this. And so I want to make I want to stop here for a second and make a very important point before we continue with Act Nine and what happened there. When we say that the school system was privatized, I want to be very clear that these are still public schools, i.e., their funding comes from public dollars. It's not like it's not like a private, private school, school like St. Right. George's, where it's like you paying tuition. It's a public school with public dollars accountable to the way that public dollars are accountable, as in like you have to submit audits to the state that says, here's what you did with the public dollars. And if they catch you doing bad things with the public dollars, you get in trouble. And there's been a bunch of examples of people getting in trouble (laughs) for doing bad things with the public dollars. People have this people. People say privatize what they mean when you say privatize. All, what we're saying is that the government isn't doing it. The local school board isn't doing it. The like elected officials that are publicly elected aren't the ones adjudicating this. Is that you've essentially contracted it out? So when you say privatized, that's what you mean. Not privatized in the sense that like oh kids have to pay tuition or kids can be restricted from going there like private schools. That's like, a, that's a fair, that's, that's, that's a, a huge fair, fundamental difference that people consistently right. do not get right. Fair clarification. They do not. It's not a privately funded thing. It's public with all the rules and open meetings laws and all that stuff of like private of a public entities. Right. All right. Just you, to be clear, if you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. Uh, Kenny and I are doing a long two hour broken down into two uh, different uh, podcasts. Uh, it's just part of a four part series on the New Orleans slash Louisiana education. So hang on. Let me just say this. Um, you were talking about this is the Republican way, but I also want to also take note that Kathleen Blanco, who was the governor I mean, at the time, was a Democrat. And my she, question is, have we ever had a Democrat as a governor of the state? That's my question. Fist, yeah, have we, we ever had that, one? That was a fist like, bump right there. Like, there's no such thing. As, there's no such thing as a Democrat as a Democratic governor in our history. In, in Louisiana. So, show Ka- me one. Kathleen Blanco, our current governor is like anti-choice. So, like, yeah. ugh, come on. Kathleen Blanco uh, supported uh, Act. So, 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 like. And it was, again, I would, so the proponents of Act Nine, which gave this power to Bessie um, to the state to take over schools, um, was the governor of Louisiana, Louisiana at the time, who was not actually Kathleen Blanco. It didn't pass under her. It was Murphy Foster. She oh. supported later the reforms, it. but it was originally Murphy, Murphy Foster. All the candidates that were running for governor to replace him, including Kathleen Blanco, supported the idea, Got including it. Bobby Jindal, who lost in that first election to Kathleen Blanco. I wish he lost. All of the ones. current all. Of, all of the members of Bessie, the board at the time, agreed with it, and many state civic organizations at the time thought that this was a good reform. Another thing that I want people to be clear on is that a polling showed that a majority of voters statewide thought that the reforms that were being proposed were aggressive but necessary given the state of schools. Um, 
even the Louisiana School Board so- Association, which represents local school districts in the state, they had reservations. But as we see constantly in this state, they they felt that that the law would only apply to Orleans Parish. So they're like, well, not our problem. And they just like got out the way of it. And to be clear, this was a constitutional amendment. Yes. So the whole state, so the whole state had to vote so for it. The, I'm going to get there. Okay. I want to get to the opponents. The opponents of Act 9 in 2003 were... The biggest opponents were the teacher unions, United Teachers of New Orleans and the Louisiana Federation of Teachers, and they had a couple of big concerns. The concerns that they had was that, one, that teachers would no longer be protected by collective bargaining power and that the takeover right. would lead eventually to the privatization of schools. They were right. The teacher unions in 2003 were saying that this is a bad idea for those two things. Um, in New Orleans, also locally, there was significant opposition um, with concerns over allowing state officials to control local tax dollars. Um, and many viewed that the takeover um, was an experiment because they didn't feel like there was like, sufficient ev- evidence from other places ar- around the country where things, stuff like this was being tried to prove that it would be successful here. Um, even BGR, the um, the Bureau of Governmental Research, which is a, a local nonpartisan um, essentially think tank that produces think pieces about like good governance and like what is good public policy. It's data driven. It's data driven and it's not leading to any particular ideology. Um, the idea of like, you know, impartial analysis. Um, their analysis of Act 9 was that they, they they saw that like while there was an environment that showed that a state take that that a state takeover um, felt necessary that like that there wasn't a, there was a lack of specificity in the plans of what to do once the takeover happened and so they were against it. So an, an important point to make here is what constituted a takeover. Yes, uh, we'll, we'll get there. Let me get there. Um, so Act Nine passed in the legislature, um, and it was by in both houses. It was signed by the governor, um, and it was approved by sixty percent of voters statewide. Sixty percent of voters statewide. Thought this was a good idea. Um, and so here's what a takeover meant. So the bar for taking over schools was set at schools that were deemed, quote, academically unacceptable, which essentially meant that you got an F rating based off of your standardized test scores for four consecutive years. So if you were a failing school getting an F for four consecutive years, you were deemed an academically academically unacceptable school and you were eligible to be taken over by the state. What 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 gives you an F score? Is it standard- so? The st- your standard, so there's a thing called SVS score, which is your mean? school performance score. Okay. Um, most states, I think every state uses this. They just have different calculations for it. Essentially, your standardized your standardized test score is in conjunction with other things like attendance, graduation rates, etc. Goes into a formula that produces a score, and the score is usually reported to the public as anywhere from an eight, from an A to an F. And there's usually a number component component that comes with it that's a cut score. So you can imagine if you're up by like near a hundred. You get an A. If you're down near, like, say, 50, just like when you go to school, school, you get an F, right? Um, and so if you got an F rating on your on your SPS score for four consecutive years, according to Act 3, you were eligible to be taken over by the state. Um, at the time that Act 9 passed in 2003, 17 schools statewide were eligible for takeover under the, that metric. 16 of the 17 were located here in New Orleans. By the end of 2004, 2005, the year immediately preceding Katrina, the scores in our city were so bad that 63% of schools in our city had been deemed academically unacceptable. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you think that they, at that time, like, knew what they were doing? Like, I mean, I, I obviously what do you mean they, by that? like, 
what taking over like did they create an infrastructure well, i mean obviously that's how rsd got con- you know but did they do you think they were just like rushing to try to wrestle control over I think, but I think, then now that it's like kind of like i applied for this radio station and i was like okay i'm gonna apply for this radio station and then one day i got a letter saying i got it and all of a sudden i was like holy crap now what do i do you know and like, I, I don't i don't know i i i i think there's an, I can't base a factual opinion on that, so like I want to be very clear that I can't provide a fact for that. Right. I think opinion wise, I think that the state simply felt it had to do something. I think I think that's what it is. I so think, they just rushed into I th- or I, whatever. That's your words. I, right. I'm not like I I I'm, I can't characterize something I wasn't there for. But what I can say is that like it is clear from when you look at the actions that we're taking that the state was looking at the performance. They were looking at the corruption, and they're like something has to be done, and. They felt like they couldn't trust local officials to do it themselves because local officials were making off with tens of thousands of dollars rather than doing anything about the failing schools. And so we need to create a mechanism to do something about this at the state level. And so they created a mechanism to do something about this at the state level. And I'm going to describe what that is. And so if they are a conservative hammer, they used a conservative nail essentially to solve the problem. And so Bessie created an entity. Well, actually, no. That's actually – well, that that analogy doesn't quite fit because – the RSD wasn't some private entity. The RSD is actually government. It's actually the thing that conserv- conservatives hate. Well, yeah. It's government. Um, it's literally right. there's literally Listen, a governmental there's, department. Come on, there's there's all right. It's literally there's, a governmental department. Right, 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 so like your right, argument, right. Your, your your analogy just didn't fit there. No, 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 it does. It, it. It. Listen, I, we have five minutes left in this, so I don't want to go into okay. it. But es- essentially, they just took a conservative approach to things. That's all. Go ahead. And so in 2003, Bessie created an entity to do the work of taking over the schools that were deemed failing, called the Recovery School District, or RSD as everyone colloquially knows it. Uh, it was created as a department, a part of the Louisiana Department of Education, and originally it was intended to be used as an instrument to take over failing schools. And then under the direction of Bessie, they would make reforms to those schools that would hypothetically lead to improved outcomes, ideally over a five-year period, and then return the schools to the control of the local jurisdiction, the local school board. Um, hypothetically, with the reforms sustaining continual improvement, and then the RSD would move on to the next batch of failing schools and do the same thing elsewhere. Um, however, um, Bessie did not have any experience directly running schools, um, and so that brings us to the part of Act Nine that said Bessie or contract Bessie will run it, or they will contract operations to the schools out to a university or a charter school. That that language that was in there. Um, that first year, only one local entity expressed interest in taking in, in taking control. It was UNO, um, and so the first school taken over by the under the RSD authority that was a failing school was a school named Pierre Capdow, which was taken over and reopened reopened as a charter school being operated by UNO. So UNO created a nonprofit that was going to operate the school on behalf of Bessie slash RSD, um, and that happened in two thousand four two thousand five. The following year, KIPP, who we talked about at the top of the show, which is a national charter network, they were approved by Bessie, uh, and they were slated to take over a school um, in the 2005-2006 school year. But then, what happened in August of 2005? Katrina. Katrina. Less than two weeks into the school year, Katrina happened. And we all know what happened there. Um, And during the storm, and after the storm, and the flooding, um, and the subsequent flooding destroyed most of the facilities that we had in the city and pretty much everything displaced everyone and shut down everything. Um, and I think right there is a good place to stop for the first hour. All right. What, what's oh, My headphones just came out. Sorry. Go ahead. Talk. Um, and so like, we're going to pause here. Um, and as Mark Allen said, 
is that like because we're doing this in two parts for this one, we're gonna pause right here, right when Katrina happens. So so Act Nine passes, um, RST is created. Um, they started chartering out schools. There was at this time there was one charter. Um, they were thinking about doing another, and then Katrina happens and everything gets shut down. Um, and that's where we're gonna pause. And then what we're gonna do here, we're actually gonna like pause, go out, and then replay the intro, and then we're gonna pick up right after Katrina. All right, we'll be right back, y'all. <laughs> 